Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Scottish Clans podcast. I'm Clint Edwards. Once again, I'll be your host as we discuss the, the clans of Scotland and some of the stories that go along with that history. Today's episode I am happy to share with you is about the border region of Scotland and about those who we affectionately refer to as the Border Reavers. You know, when we discuss Scottish history, the Highlands get a lot of the attention, when it, especially when it comes to clans. And you know what? It's not undeserved. There's just no end of cool history and interesting stories that come out of the Highlands. So I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but I'm saying that if we don't look at some of the other regions of Scotland, especially the borders, and, and dial in on some of the history that happened down there, especially as it relates to the kindreds that occupied that country along the border with England, we are doing ourselves a disservice and missing out on a lot of really cool history. So that's my goal today, is to give you a brief introduction to the border clans and to maybe share a story with that. Let me tell you how I want to lay this episode out. I want to give you some background information on how the borders came to be the borders. You know, the fact that it's a dividing area between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom can go back a long, long time. But the, when we talk about border reavers and the historical context that they lived in, where, where did, where, what time period are we actually talking about? And what region was this specifically? We'll get, so I'll get you into the, the background on that. Uh, we'll talk about an overview of the clans that existed in the different parts of the borders. And we'll also discuss, when that is done, a specific story. Because I know that some of you are getting on this podcast listening to it because you want to hear some good stories. So, once again, I, I said that this is an introduction this is by no means meant to be comprehensive, and we, we will be visiting this subject again in the future in more specific detail with some of the exact clans. So, don't feel bad if we don't cover some of the things you wanted to cover. Now, if you do have specific things you want to have covered, please go to one of the many venues that you can offer your input to me. For starters, you have Facebook. You can go to facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. Once again, Scottish clans was taken already, so I couldn't use that one. So it's facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland. And follow me on there and offer any input you can on that venue. Also, you could go to iTunes. And as you leave a review there, hopefully as many stars as you feel you can honestly give me, um, there's also a place for reviews that you can used to give me some input there on on things that you want to see more of. You can go to the Podbean app or podbean.com and you can find the the podcast on there as well. And then finally you can go to the uh, the on the Spotify app and you can like the podcast on there and you can leave a review there. Also on those venues, the the iTunes and the Spotify, you can share this podcast with somebody that you think would be interested in it. Okay, so let's get into talking about the borders. Let me give you some background on this, some historical context. When we talk about the Scottish borders and in, especially as it relates to border reavers, there's a very specific time period 
in Scottish and English history that we're referring to. Now, also one thing you ought to know, when we talk about the, the sources that you want to go to to learn about the border country and the border reavers, there's a few things that, a few sources that really come to the forefront. And I'm not going to mention all of them. If you want, you can actually go to the Wikipedia article and look at border reavers, and it'll tell you all the references it has there. I'm just going to mention two of them because I'm, I'm familiar with these two. During my work on my master's thesis, the first reference it lists on the Wikipedia article is Robert Carey's The Stirring World of Robert Carey, Robert Carey's Memoirs, 1577 through 1625. And so you're right in there with kind of the climax of border history in the late 1500s. And he was actually the, I'll tell you more about the system of governance on the border region up there, but he was what they called a, a march warden. And the march, this border, the mar- march just means borders. And so he was a border warden, and it was the borders were broken down into three different marches, east, middle, and west. And for the, on the English side, he was a marcher warden. So he had a lot of experience up there, and he has a lot to say. He's a good source, a primary source about life on the borders, and he has a lot of, a lot of interesting stories to tell from firsthand experience. Another source that I want to point out to you that is probably one of the most commonly used sources when talking about the border reavers is George MacDonald Fraser's The Steel Bonnets. So you can, you can go there and, um, and learn so much about border history. Also, I might want to make a, a brief note. You have on the list of references in this Wikipedia article, right under the steel bonnets, you have The Reavers by Alastair Moffat. Now, I haven't read that one personally yet, but I do have another book of, of his on the Highlanders. And he's he has a an easy-to-read style of writing, writes more like a journalist than a, than a scholar. And for somebody who's not a scholar, Definitely, the the journalistic style of writing tends to be much easier to follow. So he has he has a good, easy to follow way of writing, and uh, Moffat actually is a border surname, I might add. So it's his own background. So let me uh, let me dive into the historical context now that I've given you the sources that we're going to be pulling from. In the Steel Bonnets. Fraser comments on the peaceful nature of the borders in the 11 and 1200s. And so as we emerge out of the, the Scottish Wars of Independence, it's, it's in that time period, in those early 1300s and developing through the 1300s, that that's, that's kind of where the borders start to become the borders as we understand them in this border reaver context. That's where you see a lot of the kindreds who become prominent on the borders. They're starting to develop and gain a little momentum there and become a, an actual influence in those areas. And we'll go over some of those specific kindreds in a little bit. Also, so, that, so that's where you have the beginning is in those early 1300s immediately succeeding the, the Scottish Wars of Independence. Now, the, on, the, on the other end of it, the other, um, what do you call them on the, on the bookshelf, the book, the book end, the other book end, the, the tail end of the border reaver history time period, is the early 1600s. This coincides 
with the time period when James the sixth of Scotland becomes the first of England. So now you have the same, they didn't become the same kingdom yet, like all wrapped up in one, but they did have the same monarch. And so that changes what you consider a border. And James's goal, his vision for the borders was that this is going to become this the, the middle shires, this nice, pleasant little area of rolling hills and peaceful scenery and not this war-torn, feud, ragged, crazy area that it had been for the last 300 years. He wanted to change all that. Um, the, thing, the thing that one of the conditions that sets the stage for the borders becoming what they are is for a long time, even before the 1300s, whenever you have a Scottish army that wants to invade and put the herd on England, they've got to pass right through this border country. And guess what? They're probably not going to show up at your border market and pay fair price, fair market value for all their food and all that other stuff. They roll through and they take what they need. And then on the other hand, every time you have an English army that wants to invade Scotland, you have the same thing going on where the the... English army rolls through and they got a little off the land and so they just kind of pillage and plunder and do what they have to do to provide for their needs. So it became less and less productive for the people who lived in this area to ever plant crops because they just weren't confident enough that they're going to be able to harvest you know, the whole law of the harvest, you reap what you sow. Well, literally, they didn't know if they were going to get to reap what they sowed. And so they, the, the economy there is largely becomes cattle-based. You know, cattle, you can, you, can, you can, if you think something's coming, you can move your cows to a different territory, especially if you have a lot of it, and there might be a safer place to put all your livestock. And so the it becomes much more cattle-based rather than crops-based with their agriculture. And the cattle, like it was in the highlands, becomes one of your s- status symbols of in society, where if you have a lot of head of cattle, then you're, you're higher up. So that's kind of the historical context, a little bit of the background. Now, there's some people, when you read their, the history of the borders, they'll say, well, it behooved neither, neither king... The Scottish nor the English really wanted to or cared much about enforcing their laws on the borders, except for when, in rare circumstances, when it behooved them to, it became their personal interest, not the interest of the realm. And the reason that some of them I've read say that is because they liked having this buffer zone in the middle there, like the English liked having a buffer zone between them and the Scots, and the Scottish king also between them and the English this middle area that was just crazy. Um, I don't know if I really agree with that take on it because of what each side established. And it seemed like that it was in cooperation with each other. What you have developed, and I alluded to this earlier, is a system of the marches. And so on both sides, you have a west march, a middle march, and an east march. And east, each march has a warden who is his stewardship is and responsibility is for the law and order in within his march. So once again, you have a Scottish West, Middle, and East march, and you have an English West, Middle, and East march. And they would have these market days where you would come together and they address any grievances, and each march warden would be there and 
they would they would work things out and and you know what there was that that worked with varying degrees of success sometimes you would have and often you'd have like Robert Carey I mentioned him earlier he comes in there as a as a warden but the problem with him was he was not tied in at all to any of the local kindreds and we find that the the people on the borders were much more loyal to their kindred than they were to the crown's representative so this sounds a lot like the highlands and in fact that's not where the similarities stop and you research the history of the border clans in a lot of ways they start looking a lot like the highland clans now in a previous episode i talked about the whether whether or not the concept of a clan existed all throughout scotland or was it just a highland thing now the the conclusion if you go back to that episode and i and i spell it out a little bit better and talk to you about why i come to certain conclusions on that but the conclusion was that the the concept of a kin-based society was all throughout scotland but here's something i want to go in a little bit more detail in the future maybe a future episode with some further research is that i just don't think so i am willing to say hey yep the lockharts who were neither borderers nor highlanders or the cunninghams or the hamiltons same same deal they they were still clans they were still existing in a kin-based society but here's what i've i'm persuaded by historical contemporary historical evidence that the borders and the highlands were looked at as being very similar and different from the other areas of Scotland and let me let me tell you about what I mean by that here um, I'm gonna give you some sources one of my sources is a, an interesting document it comes from the late 1500s it is the Act of Parliament dated 29 July 1587 now you can access this via Electric Scotland which I discussed in my sources in a previous episode that you can go to. to look. Electric Scotland has a lot to offer. And, and I'm not in any type of official collusion with that website. Um, I'm not being paid to tell you this. I've just found it very useful. They have a lot of information, a lot of links. You can go to the the clans and families section. Let me go back to that page and, and at the top. So at the top of electricscotland.com there's a lot of different there's a huge menu of links that you can click on. The two I want to mention here specifically are clans and families and history. Now under clans and families they list a lot of links to certain things in here. Now I'm not endorsing each particular source as of the utmost quality but there's a lot to choose from. Some of it is very scholarly um, and, and then in another other sources I have a professional difference of opinion on but I still respect the amount of information that this website brings to bear here. And so I'll, and, and, I, and I think if I were, and I can't speak for electricscotland.com, but I'm imagining to give them the benefit of the doubt, they're not personally making a quality statement on every single source they give you access to here. They're just saying, hey, here's some sources. Do your own study. And so you can find this source I mentioned earlier, this 
Act of Parliament, 29 July, 1587. You can access that via electricscotland.com. But the, the interesting thing, it's a contemporary record from 1587 which lists clans that had a chief or other acknowledged head to whom they were more loyal than the person to whom they should owe their loyalty in a purely political context if those two persons were not one and the same. So, in other words, and I was reading from a previous article that I've written on this, if you had their clan chief and the guy that the crown put in charge there, if they, those two weren't the same person, which sometimes they were, but if they weren't, these groups of people that they have listed in this act of parliament are going to go with the clan chief every time. And so it's interesting. It's a, I think it's an interesting glimpse into how contemporaries view these two regions of Scotland is that they have a list of kindreds in the highlands and in the borders. No other lowland kindreds were mentioned in this except for the border clans. And so that just leads me to conclude that whereas the whole of Scotland was kin-based in their society, the clans in the highlands and the clans in the borders looked a lot like each other and maybe less like other kindreds throughout the rest of Scotland. Now that deserves a lot more research and there might be some writing on there out there. I'm sure there is. I'm positive there is, but that that'd be an interesting subject to to track down and dive into a little bit deeper. Okay, so I've mentioned that you have these on each side of the of the border you have a east, middle and west march with a warden that's over it. So which clans do we see in each one? I'm just going to use the Wikipedia article. I told you the sources that the Wikipedia article is drawing from on this. So you could probably find similar information throughout Steel Bonnets. I haven't read the whole book, Steel Bonnets, but I have used it as a source. I used it as a source during my master's thesis, and I've read um, some chunks out of it recently. Okay, so on the East March, and the Wikipedia article gives you the kindreds on both sides, and and I'll tell you about that in a second, but I'm just going to stick with the Scottish side of it because this podcast is called The Scottish Clans. So in the East March on the Scottish side, you have Hume, Trotter, Dixon, Brumfield, Craw, and Cranston. In the Middle March, you have the kindreds of Burns, Kerr, Young, Pringle, Davison, Gilchrist, Tate of East Teviotdale, Scott, Oliver, Turnbull, Rutherford of West Teviotdale, Armstrong, Crozier, Elliot, Nixon, Douglas, Laidlaw, Rutledge, Turner, Henderson of Liddisdale. And so you're in these names I've mentioned so far, you you probably know people with these last names. So, you know, if you, uh, everybody I found is interested in to, to hear about their own family. You meet somebody, they say their last name, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know a little bit. You're, did, your, uh, did your folks come from the Scottish borders? Probably they don't even know. But they're always, like, I found that they're usually very interested to hear any information you might have on that. And to round this off, you've got the West March with the kindreds whose surnames were Bell, Irvin, Johnston, Maxwell, Carlisle, Beatty, Little, Carruthers, Glendinning, Rutledge, and Moffat. So you can see that some of those surnames span the, the border. In, in, so the, those, those March 
boundaries between east, middle, and west were the the kindreds didn't sit into them nice and tidy like. So you've you've heard some of those those surnames in more than one march, and it's it never is as tidy as we'd like things to be. It just it just is what it is, I guess. I don't even know what that that phrase gets used a lot. I guess I know what it means, but I think people overuse it. Anyway, so those those surnames you have there, let me make a brief comment on an interesting cultural peculiarity in the in the border country rather than if you're looking at contemporary sources, rather than use the term clan, which the government does by the way in that document I mentioned earlier, they say clans or families and they kind of use those terms interchangeably on the borders you do see the term kindred used, but a lot of the times instead of clan, you see the word surname. So instead of the Carruthers clan, they'll refer to the Carruthers, that the group, they'll call them everybody of that surname instead of, of that clan. And that's just a, a common thing that I found in some of, some of my research. Okay, so we have the marches spelled out for you. We've got some of the kindreds that were prevalent or powerful or influential in those different areas. So there's kind of your your picture there down along the Scottish and English border. And I'm not going to go into a background on each one of those names, although I know some of you heard your name in there. It's either your last name or you've got in your family tree or you married into it or you've got friends or whatever. You've got some connection with that and you want more information. I'm here to tell you the information is out there and it's not just Wikipedia articles, it's also there's if you do a Google search for a lot of these things or even a scholar.google.com so you can use Google Scholar, a lot of times that'll show you a book that actually you can access through Google Books create your own library, you can make them your favorites. Explore that a little bit because I've actually found quite a few cool sources when it comes to that. In fact, I'll tell you some of the books that I've been able to um, I've been able to find in this. Give me just one second to pull this up because this wasn't actually one of my things that I was planning on sharing with you today, but I, there's some sources here that I think you might be interested in. And then I'm going to tell you a story. I promise I'll get to the story. All right. So we have a history of... Th- these are some of the things I have saved in my Google books. I have the history. The, I have a book called Upper Annandale, Annandale. It's history and traditions. So you're going to find surnames in there like Moffat and Johnston. The, the Bruces originally had power in Annandale, and then they became the... the, the ascended to the throne... And they place a lot of trust in the Johnstons in that area. And that's kind of how the Johnstons rose up into power. But anyway, some of your surnames from Annandale you can find in there. Let's see. Um, Let me go through here. Battle of Langside. Oh, I've got my memoirs of Robert Carey in here. Once again, that was that primary source. He was an English marcher warden you can have a lot of cool sources there um, let's see Clan McFarland they're they're Highlanders let me switch to my favorites here I know I've got some stuff on the Elliots and all this stuff let me search through here 
you got Gordons. They were originally from the border until they became really popular in the north of Scotland. Let's see. Got a lot of Highland stuff on here. Once again, this just proves my earlier point that that your uh, the the history books that are talking about the clans of Scotland are overwhelmingly, it just numbers wise, totally biased towards the Highlands. Okay, so now here we're getting into some some border stuff. I've got border fury, England and Scotland at war, twelve ninety six to fifteen sixty eight. That's going to have a bunch of border history in it. I've got the border Elliots and the family of Minto. So if you come from that background, you can see some history on the Elliots were have have some really interesting history along the border. And I've got steel bonnets you can access through this. So there it is right there. The Scottish Middlemarch, 1573 to 1625. Power, Kinship, and Allegiance by Anna Groundwater. And that is actually a... Anna Groundwater is a scholar. This is not a uh, just some guy decided to write a book. She is pretty... That's She's got some pretty good stuff there as far as if you want to take it to more of an academic level. And Border Raids and Reavers. Robert Borland, 1898. Anyway, so there's some example of some of the things I've found. And, and there's probably lots more that I haven't found yet. So just to let you know if you want to pursue this a little farther. Okay, so the story part. Thank you for being patient. For those of you who just wanted to hear a good story, I'm going to read to you something I found on... So once again, I mentioned in a previous episode being able to use Wikipedia articles as a gateway to other sources. So what I'm going to read to you from about the Battle of Dryfe Sands is by John H.D. Gare. It's a PDF document I found in the references for at the bottom of the Wikipedia article for the Clan Johnston. It has a, a separate thing here on the Battle of Dryfe Sands, 1593. So um, let me just tell you that this is going to be a, about a, a conflict between two major West March border clans, the Johnstons and the Maxwells. So here I go. I'm just reading off of this, this, uh, this PDF document here. The feud between the Maxwells and the Johnstons was one of the most bitter in the history of Scotland. In the second half of the 16th century, the heads of both families were at different times wardens of the West Marches, each holding the office several times. Often the appointment came after a period of rebellious activity, such as the weakness of the government of King James VI. The Maxwells, whose leader lived in Cairlaverock Castle, were more powerful than the Johnstons, whose chief was usually based at Lockwood Tower, near what is now Johnston Bridge. The fortunes of the families depended partly on the machinations and changing alliances at the court of King James. For a time, Lord Maxwell was abroad trying to arrange a Spanish invasion of Scotland in conjunction with the Spanish Armada in an attempt to restore Roman Catholicism in Scotland. This did not bring about the retribution that might have been expected, partly because the king liked to keep his options open. Among the many events of the feud before Dreyfus Sands were the burning of Lockwood Tower by the Maxwells in 1585, the partial burning of Lockerbie later in the year, and then the capture of Sir John Johnston and his imprisonment in the Cairlaverock Castle. The hardness of this imprisonment probably hastened Sir John's death in 1587, although he had resumed the feud after his release in the last year of his life. Now his son, James Johnston, soon to be knighted as Sir James Johnston of Dunskelly, a tower in Kirkpatrick uh, Flemish or uh, Flemish parish, 
became the chief of the Johnstons. After the Armada failure, Lord Maxwell was able not only to escape punishment, but also in due course to become warden of the West Marches again in 1592. In the same year, Sir James Johnston made an agreement with Lord Maxwell with the intention of ending the feud. In the following year, William Johnston of Wamfrey, known as the Galliard, led a raid on the Crichtons of Upper Nithsdale. Johnston was captured and hanged. The Wamfrey Johnstons, now led by William Johnston of Kirkhill, launched a revenge raid on the Crichtons, during which at least 15 Crichtons were killed. Their widow, their widows carried their bloody shirts to Edinburgh, and these were, the, were paraded through the streets to shame the king into taking action. Lord Maxwell, as warden, now made an agreement with other leading Nithsdale families to deal with the Johnstons. In December 1593, Maxwell led an army of perhaps 2,000 men out of Dumfries. As well as Maxwell's, it included Robert Crichton, Lord Sanquire, and his followers and contingents led by Douglas of Drumlinrig, Kirkpatrick of Closeburn, Grierson of Lag, Chartres of Amosfield, and various others. Meanwhile, Sir James Johnston had been warned by Johnston of Cummertrees of Maxwell's intentions, and he gathered a remarkable army, perhaps up to half the size of Maxwell's. As well as many Johnstons, it included Scots from Teviotdale, Elliots from Liddesdale, Irvins, Murrays, Carruthers, Grahams, and even diverse Englishmen. Now let me pause real quick on this. One thing that you learn in, in the Steel Bonnets is that the national loyalties on either side of the border were secondary to kindred loyalties. And if you had people who had property on both sides, they were Scotsmen when it behooved them, and they were Englishmen when it behooved them. And they were much... If you had a Scotsman a, a borderer on the Scottish side and a borderer on the English side, they had a lot more com in common with each other than they did with people from other regions of their own kingdoms. And so it's, it's interesting that we see Englishmen mentioned in here on the side of the Johnstons taking part in a conflict that is largely Scottish in nature. All these kindreds are Scottish, and, and that's cool. That's, I think it's interesting that you see these Englishmen involved here, but just know that national loyalties were often lower down on the priority list. Okay, back into the story. An advanced party of Maxwell's army, led by a Captain Oliphant, was beaten near Loch Mabin by a Johnston force led by James Johnston of Kirkton. Oliphant was killed, along with some of his men. The rest sought refuge in Loch Mabin Kirk. But the Johnstons set fire to the building and forced its occupants to surrender. That night, Maxwell's main army may have camped on the hill near Skipmire. Next day, he took up a position on the left bank of the River Drife, near the present-day farm of Drifestalegate. Some accounts suggest that, the part, that part of Maxwell's army moved into Lockerbie and set fire to the Johnston Tower at Nether Place before returning to the main army at Drive Sands. Meanwhile, Sir James Johnston had placed his men on higher ground overlooking Maxwell's army. Johnston's horsemen provoked some of Maxwell's men into pursuing them into an ambush, as a result of which the main Johnston army was able to fall upon the advancing Nithsdale force and throw it into confusion. 
This confusion quickly spread to the whole of Maxwell's army, where movements were restricted by their confined position. The lairds of Drumlinrig, Closeburn, and Lag rode hastily from the battlefield, doubtless followed by many of their men. Maxwell, his army in ruins, was killed on the battlefield, either by William Johnston of Kirkhill or by Sir James Johnston himself, or even, if tradition is to be believed, by the wife of Johnston of Kirkton Tower. The lady is said to have struck Lord Maxwell repeatedly on the head with the massive key of Kirkton Tower. Ugh. Maxwell's head is said to have been carried on the point of a spear by William Johnston, who claimed the reward of a five-pound land offered by Sir James Johnston. Some of the escaping Nistel men were drowned trying to cross Annan at Gotterby, while others seem to have been killed while trying to escape through Lockerbie. Some who escaped are said to have had quote-unquote Lockerbie licks on their faces caused by being slashed by the swords of pursuing horsemen. Pardon me. <coughs> the numbers killed in Lord Maxwell's army have been variously estimated between 20 and 700. Now, that's quite a spread. The truth, no doubt, lying somewhere in between. Nearly two years after Drive Sands, Lord Harry's led a Maxwell army into Lockerbie to subdue the Johnstons, and several leaders of the family were captured, only to be rescued when a Johnston force drove the Maxwells out of Annandale. The weakness of the king's position was again revealed when Sir James Johnston, far from being punished for Drive Sands, was made warden of the West Marches in 1596. Various events followed which showed that the new Lord Maxwell had not forgiven his father's death. For a time, Lord Maxwell was detained in Edinburgh Castle, but he was able to escape. Eventually, a meeting was arranged between Lord Maxwell and Sir James Johnston, each to have only one companion in April 1608, probably near Shield Hill. A quarrel began during which Lord Maxwell shot Sir James Johnston, who died soon afterwards. Times had changed, and Lord Maxwell had to escape abroad, being sentenced to death in his absence. He finally returned to Scotland in 1612, and while hiding in Castle Sinclair, he was handed over to the authorities by the Earl of Caithness. He was executed in 1613 after a brazen attempt to suggest marriage alliances between the two families. Some years later, the old feud came to an end, and it is now no more than a very distant memory. All right, so there is your story. And how about that? Not only if you have Johnston or Maxwell connections, we have several other kindreds involved in this. Once again, I'll go over them. You have, on the Maxwell side, you have, you have uh, the Crichtons. You have Douglas of Drumlinrig, Kirkpatrick of Closeburn, Grierson of Lag, Chartres of Amosfield, and various others. And on the Johnston side, to recap some of the people who, once again, who were in there, you had Cummer Trees. Oh, wait. Scanning down a little bit farther. Scots from Teviotdale, Elliots from Liddesdale, Irvins, Murrays, Carruthers, Grahams, and a few Englishmen. Fascinating. Well, there you have it. That's quite the deal. The Lockerbie licks, sl slashes on your face. Man. Um, and you notice that that wraps up that last engagement where the Maxwell, Lord Maxwell treacher treacherously shoots Sir James Johnson, who thought he was going to come and patch things up. Happened in 1608. That's after King's, King James VI assumes the English throne. And so you can see that the, the tail end of this border country, it didn't... It didn't stop all at once. 
it took a little bit for this to settle in like, no, there's a new sheriff in town and this isn't how it's going to be anymore. But it eventually happened around the early 1600s. So you see this time period of the kind of where the clans were operating on the borders. It wraps up sooner than it does in the highlands. In the highlands, they still have not quite another 150 years of primarily kin-based society and even then it doesn't wrap up nice and tidy like after the battle of Culloden. and there's n- none of this is is nice and tidy and that's one thing you learn about history is we like to make it tidy but it is, is really not tidy but the the highlands that that clan society continues to live significantly longer in the highlands than it does in the in the borders anyway there's your story i hope you've enjoyed it I hope this had enough excitement for you. The border country, the border reavers, that is some that is some exciting history. I'll add one note of historical interest that that I've I thought has been I noticed when I was doing my my master's thesis. My master's thesis was comparing the highlands and the the borders in this time period that where it'd be most relevant, right? Between the thir- early 1300s and the up until around 1600, so that 300-year stretch. But it was specifically in the in the realm of warfare that I had to compare them because it would just be too broad to go into all these other elements or areas to search. So one thing I, I just want to point out that I noticed is that the Highlanders overwhelmingly light infantry. And I, I think I would miss a huge part of border history if I don't include this before I wrap the episode up. If I don't talk that the borderers were primarily light cavalry. In fact, when the respective English or Scottish armies are pulling these borderers into their f- main forces, they provide unparalleled light cavalry. Now, what do you use light cavalry for? You use them for reconnaissance, which is cool, and for skirmishers. So kind of hit-and-run guerrilla, just like they were used to doing back in their their native environment. You see them doing that same thing when they're brought into the warfare in a larger context. And so they skirmish with the enemy. They provide reconnaissance. They, uh, they do the things that light cavalry does best. And so to compare that with the heavy cavalry, not this full frontal assault on the enemy's position. So the, they, these guys, that's how they conducted their their raids as they as they go into another clan's territory or another kindred's territory or across the border into England it's almost always doing it on horseback they were just awesome on horseback lived their lives on horseback and their we could get into their armor and all that stuff the different weapons they used that might be a good subject for another another podcast or another episode rather but they were, I just, it has to be noted that these guys were unparalleled light cavalry. They knew the land so well. When they would go and conduct a raid, they would know all of where to bring, the, the best way to bring a herd of cattle that was stolen back. The Johnstons that we mentioned earlier had their own place called the Devil's Beef Tub where they would pasture their stolen cattle. I mean, it's, it's this exciting history to learn about they they knew where the marshes were where the boggy ground was to stay away from that stuff and if you had a pursuing force trying to get their stuff back or get revenge 
if they didn't know this terrain equally well, this knowledge of the land, they're going to slip right through in the good spots and let the enemy get bogged down in the bad spots. So it's, it's really cool stories. There's tons of, just like the Battle of Dry Sands, we can go through all throughout these different feuds that they had with each other. And so you will see the borders popping up in future podcasts. Hey, it's been a pleasure being with you. I've got to run, but don't forget to subscribe or like on your respective platform that you're listening to this on. Leave a review. Please leave me some, leave me some feedback, whether it's on the podcast platform you're listening on or on Facebook and, and share the, share the podcast with your friends. Tell them about it. People that you know, these, these surnames that we've listed today or others that we've listed in times past, go out. I know you have friends that have those surnames and might be interested in their, in the history of their, their family. So Thank you for being with me today. I look forward to seeing you again. Goodbye for now.